and I'm going to attempt to, and with, with some degree of order <laughs> to bring out the high points. Uh, for I know if I would take every line of Isaiah line by line, uh, it would it would maybe take the rest of my life. So um, I have found it not an easy book to present uh, piecemeal as we're doing it right now. So uh, it's been a challenge for me. And uh, I've got a lot of help from Alice. So let's join our hearts together in prayer and see what the Lord has for us today. Father, how we thank you that you have not left us without a testimony. And Lord, as Alice and I were discussing even this morning, that particularly the prophecies concerning events surrounding Israel and events surrounded, surrounding the first and second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ are uh, almost too many to number in both the Old and the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, the prophecies are dispersed among what is occurring in Israel in the present and what will come in the future. And it is sometimes difficult, Lord, for us to discern the difference. However, Alice and I remarked that prophecies in the Old Testament are not going to be revealed to those who take a cavalier attitude and uh, do not um, work strenuously to uh, bring them in their proper perspective. And we thank you that there is so much in Isaiah. It is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. He certainly was, as he is referred to by many, as the prince of prophets. Mm -hmm. And his prophecy lasted over a period of some 60 years. Um, thank you for him. Yes. Thank you, Lord, that you have always raised up men and women to uh, utilize uh, their life story to guide us in our present difficulties. One certainly that comes to mind in that regard is the, the little book of Ruth, mm -hmm. which is so filled with the idea of the blessing that comes by way of the kinsman redeemer mm -hmm. of who Christ, uh, of who 
Boaz was the type, but Christ is our kinsman redeemer. I hope I can remember to bring that out this morning. Mm -hmm. And so bless this time. Mm -hmm. And uh, despite the weaknesses of the one who teaches today, uh, may, uh, may the minds of those who hear be able to benefit greatly from what the Lord has spoken through Isaiah. Mm -hmm. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Do we have Miss Betty? She is there. Okay. She is there. All right. So um, we're going to turn your attention starting today in Isaiah chapter 9. And I think it's extremely important that you follow along in the scripture. I recommend that you take a pencil and that you mark some important things uh, so that next time you open that, you'll, you will have more information as to what scripture is referring to uh, either present circumstances or future circumstances. But starting in chapter 9 of Isaiah, we're going to be talking about, uh, as Schofield outlines it, uh, the divine child, Israel's only hope. Before I read, I want to, to give you the overall scope of what particularly the first half of Isaiah and a little beyond is about. You have, if you do not understand that from uh, the death of Solomon, uh, Israel was uh, divided into two uh, sovereign territories. And that was by some level of a civil war. Uh, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, being the, uh, the king of what we refer to as the southern kingdom. And hopefully you can get in your mind's eye if if you haven't done this, it, it makes everything so much easier. If you will simply find a good map of ancient Israel, many Bibles have these, and see that God placed the 12 tribes of Israel uh, in various, well, actually uh, the 11 tribes because the Levites were never given their own particular territory out of the nation. The Levites did not inherit the land because they were the priest uh, tribe of Israel and uh, sort of like uh, present day believers, they 
were concerned with the their ministry to the whole of Israel and were not diverted to be taking care of their own particular portion of the nation. Mm -hmm. And so Levites were found everywhere. There were certain cities that were uh, populated very much by Levites, but they never had their territories such as all the other 12, 11 tribes. And even in chapter nine, verse one, uh, we read about uh, two of the tribes of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali, and um, then the mention of uh, lands beyond the Jordan uh, and the, the area of Israel in the north called Galilee. Now, what we're going to find in chapter 9, verse 1, is a description of the primary headquarters of the Lord Jesus Christ when he first came to present himself to Israel as the Messiah. And so understand that verse one is talking about the northernmost territories or tribes of Israel, um, which uh, to some degree immediately upon their, upon their being inhabited by the Israelites from the, from the specified tribe, that the northern uh, portions of Israel was plagued by the inner dispersion of heathen nations to the north. And so in your mind's eye, you would see Israel in the north as pushing right up against Lebanon. Also, uh, the, the eastern portion of northern Israel was, was so closely situated with what is referred to as Syria. Now, I want to remind you today that when in Isaiah we see the term Assyria with an A, that is not the Syria uh, that is just to the east of Israel. It is the same Syria that exists today um, and which uh, Israel not too many years ago uh, captured a portion of Syrian land at least uh, land that they had come to occupy uh, during the Great Dispersion, uh, called the Golan Heights. But it was always a problem when Israel, particularly at its borders and in its weakest places, it was always a problem 
that the people became intermingled with heathen tribes, which was contrary to the uh, commands of God. There were to be no heathen tribes living in any of the 11 divisions of Israel, uh, lest they become idolatrous. And of course, what we know is that from the very northern tip of Israel, uh, idolatry started in the north, and eventually, by the time of, of uh, the last king, Zedekiah, that uh, the idolatry of the heathens had even progressed all the way down into Judah and Benjamin, which is referred to as the southern kingdom. And so normally in Isaiah, when you hear the term Israel, not always, but when you hear the term Israel, he is talking about the, uh, the tribes that are north were situated in the land given according to the division that Moses uh, gave them that uh, the it would be the nine tribes in the north that is called Israel. Also, they are called Samaria. And so when you hear the story of the good Samaritan, the irony of the story uh, is that everybody in the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin, and of course Judah, uh, is where the, that great city, the apple of God's eye existed was in Judah. And Samaria became uh, that Northern kingdom to be looked at with disdain on the part of those from the South particularly because of their idolatry and their rebellious nature. Understand also that occasionally you will hear the Northern Kingdom referred to by the name of one of the sons of Jacob, and that is Ephraim. And so you're gonna see, you're gonna see three names for the Northern Kingdom. You're gonna see Israel, you're going to see uh, Samaria, and you're going to, to see um, Ephraim. And so you should know. Otherwise, you get confused. Mm -hmm. And all these things uh, I've had to learn through confusion. Mm -hmm. And finally, uh, figure it out. And so we're going to start in chapter 9. Um, with a discussion of the first advent of Christ, which is found in verses one and two of chapter nine. And one's a little nebulous as to our ability to understand it, but it goes like this. Nevertheless, the dimness 
shall not be such as was in her vexation. When at the first, he, that would be God, lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. So that basically tells us that the next verse, which is going to talk about the coming of Christ, that his primary place of ministry was not in Jerusalem. Christ promised, uh, or Christ's primary place of ministry was up in these despised areas of, um, of Galilee and Naphtali and Zebulun. You may remember that in the New Testament, when someone referred to Christ as a Galilean, that the statement was made, can anything good come out of Galilee? And that's how, uh, you know, people associated Christ with having uh, his primary ministry in the area of Israel that was most despised. And that is the way God works. Yes. God chooses the weak things of the world to confound the mighty. Yes. And so Christ did not end up coming immediately from Bethlehem, which is only about six miles from Jerusalem, but he moved all the way from Bethlehem as a baby, first into Egypt in hiding, and then finally up into Nazareth, which is what was a despised uh, portion of that Northern kingdom. And he was called a Nazarene. And that was a diminutive title. Uh, again, uh, anybody from Nazareth was not considered uh, to be valuable as a prophet to the people. And many felt that a prophet had never come out of uh, that area. But the fact is that two prominent prophets did come before uh, even the time we're talking about, uh, did come out of that area. One of them's name was Jonah and the other's name was Nathan. And both of their prophecies were towards the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. So having said that, speaking in verse one of the despised area from which Christ had his ministry, verse two says, and this is much more straightforward, the people that walked in darkness 
have seen a great light and they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them, the light has shined. And that, those two verses speak to the first advent of Christ, but verses three through seven speak primarily to the second advent of Christ when he will return to the earth in glory, destroy the armies of the wicked one or the Antichrist or the Assyrian as he's referred to in some places, um, the evil one, the dragon, and so on and so on. Satan has many names. Uh, and that uh, is touched upon in verses three uh, through seven. And just before I cover that, I'm going to ask Al if she'd play a special song for us. Can we have Mark? No. No. This is not you, Mark. <laughs> it is well with my soul. This is called It Is Well With My Soul.
good. Thank you. I've just thought in that song, when the singer said that his sins were nailed to the cross, I thought of Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, where Paul, speaking of the cross, uh, in verse 13, he said, And you, being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. That's a good place to have our sins and to have that which was against us as far as the law nailed to the cross. And therefore, those sins are remembered no more. Glory to God. One thing I thought I should have said yesterday at the funeral, and I'll just say it this morning. No man will come into eternal rest in either an earthly or heavenly kingdom of the Lord, except he be absolutely, perfectly, without sin, that is why we never depend upon our works. It is only the work of the cross that provides for us through faith the very righteousness of God. And that's what we must have. We must have that to be in fellowship and communion with him for all eternity. And it's a major blessing mm-hmm. to be able to say, it is well with my soul. And so, speaking of Christ and that coming and making his headquarters in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 9, the people that walked in darkness, that would be in that dark place in northern Israel, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light And they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them Mm -hmm. has the light shined. Mm -hmm. Moving on now with verses 3 through 7, I hope you can see that the second advent, and so here we have the first advent and the second advent of Christ pushed up right one next to the other. Verse 3, chapter 9, Isaiah. Thou hast multiplied the nation, 
and and that word not probably should not be there and increased the joy they joy before thee according to the joy and harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil for thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor for every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood but this shall be with burning of fuel and fire now when you turn to revelation and we read about christ we will find in regard to verse 5 that his vesture will be of such that it will appear to have been dipped in blood and this is is how it will come right after he defeats the armies of the evil one and prepares Israel to enter into the millennial kingdom and it is a great battle so we could say that was the battle of Armageddon but then we get these most wonderful words that you folks may see on your Christmas cards this year uh, and how many people look at these words on their Christmas cards and have no idea where they come from in the scripture and what they are referring to and so verse 6 says for unto us a child is born now that particularly just does point to the first advent but the rest of it is all for the second unto us a son is given interesting here that when the word child is used we get the idea that jesus christ was a human being mm -hmm. jesus christ came in the flesh and he was a child in the earth but the next title that is given unto him is something that only god can bring about for unto us a child is born and to us a son is given there we see both the humanity and the godliness uh, of the lord jesus christ and his coming he was the god man the old catechism said he was very, very God and that he was very, very man. And for those students among you, that is referred to as the hypostatic union uh, in theology. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and what? The government shall be upon his shoulder. What government is being referred to there? Well, it is nothing less than the government that Christ will exercise as the theocrat uh, over the, the nation of Israel and the world during the thousand year reign of Christ. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Certainly that couldn't apply to his first coming for he came as the suffering servant 
in his first coming. He did not have authority in the world, at least as the world saw it. But in the millennial kingdom, we will see the application of power and might and wisdom and discernment on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might rule not only Israel, but the world uh, in, in every corner of the world. A son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see the term, the Everlasting Father, I get a little confused because Christ, the Son, is not the Father. Uh, and there is uh, a heresy that has existed from the beginning of the early church. Uh, and still exists today in some circles, that, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are just different manifestations of one person. And that is a doctrine of heresy. There are three persons in the Trinity. They are distinct personalities. They have their, they have, uh, a perfect character, each one. They are in agreement in all things. They are a unity as they are placed together. Nevertheless, they operate in various roles in regard to whether, you know, they, uh, one person is the father and he is calling the shots. And in the end, the father will be handed all of the victories that the Son and the Holy Spirit perform in this earth. That the, and the scripture says that is going to be done so that the Father will be all in all. And so to call Christ the everlasting Father uh, caused me a problem. But with a little more study, I found out this, and this you can find in your Amplified Bible, uh, that that everlasting Father should be translated the everlasting Father of eternity. Now, why is that different? Because it is Christ who uh, was the perpetrator and the vehicle of the Trinity, whereby all things were made. For the scripture says that all things were made by him and for him. And so he is, like we call George Washington, the father of our nation. Uh, we call Christ the father of the universe and that he made all that is made, including you, my friend. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's helpful to know that uh, that is better translated, the everlasting father of eternity and the prince of peace. 
And so all these terms in other places in the scripture, and I won't go to them now, but uh, you will find Christ described as wonderful. Remember the song we sang? His name is wonderful. And uh, counselor, uh, the mighty God, the everlasting father of eternity and the prince of peace. And so he is. Verse seven, and of the increase of his government. Now, again, here we're talking about the government of God. God has always had his government in the earth. There was a government at the time of Adam. Uh, there was a government at the time of Noah. There was a government of God at the time of Abraham. There was a government of God in the time of Moses. And each of those governments uh, required uh, different obligations on behalf of mankind. And the final government of God uh, as associated with men in the earth will be the millennial kingdom. And of course, for all eternity, God will continue to have a government, but there will, it will be different past the millennial kingdom and the great white throne judgment and the renewal or recreation of the earth into the, into the uh, eternal state, God will still be governing the universe. And I look forward to finding out because the scripture does not say, and I am so curious about how God will deal with the universe and what role we will play in the rest of eternity. Talk about exciting. Talk about fulfilling. We will know and, and be absolutely filled with joy and, and eternally because we will be doing exactly what we were made to do. And this is the reason that so many people in the earth who even are successful are not joyful because there can be no satisfaction in life that is true and lasting that does not spring from the mind of God as to the purpose for which we were made. And that is true in the age in which we live. We are heavenly beings. We are made for heaven. We are not made for the earth. And so you see, if we continue to pursue the things of the earth, we will never find the satisfaction that God intends for each of us to have due to our relationship and the purpose for which he made us. And that makes perfect sense to me. Mm -hmm. And so there shall be no end 
the increase in its government, peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, when I see that, not only are we going to be fulfilled in our work, but God is going to be able to end all of his dealing in eternity at one time. In other words, the day comes in that eternal state when God will no longer have to deal with rebels. God will not have to deal with sinners, but God will be so uh, absolutely fulfilled and, and joy in those whom he has created. For today, we must understand that God is grieved at all of the judgment that he has, that he is required based on his person. He is required to bring judgment upon the very men and women that he made. And he would rather not do that, but it's the only way. And eventually he will destroy all wickedness in the universe. And I think God is going to be much relieved mm -hmm. at that time. Now, you see something in verse seven that I think you ought to be aware of if you are not already. And I always have to consider those among you who may not have been taught certain things, and I try to bring you up to speed. And so I want you to notice uh, this third line in verse seven says, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom. Well, what's that got to do with Christ? What is being referred to there is the Davidic covenant. Now, you know, I could ask you uh, that the ones I could see to raise your hand if you know what the Davidic covenant is. But for those of you who have never heard of it, you, if you want, you can turn to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, and you can read about what is called the seventh or the Davidic covenant. Now, this is not to be confused with the covenant of law or, or with the age of grace nor the age of judgment. The Davidic covenant is an agreement among, men, among other covenants, and I think there were seven. Uh, so it's the last covenant that God made with man, and he made it with, the, with one man, King David. And 
um, without reading that whole passage, uh, I'm just going to start with verse 10. I think I'll start with verse 8. Uh, where the Lord, speaking with David, says, Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep goat, and following the sheep to be a ruler over my people Israel. Now that is referring to the all the, the 12 tribes, uh, not just the northern kingdom. And um, be ruler over my people over Israel, and I was with thee wheresoever thou wentest, and have cut off thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore. And so in that statement, the Lord is looking well into our future. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house, and when thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and I will set up thy seed after thee, this is the offspring of David, uh, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, that would be Solomon, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, how long? forever. These people that have the church replacing Israel, I just can't understand. This is one of hundreds of scriptures that basically tell us that Israel is going to be a nation in the world forever. And he goes on in verse 14 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with all the rod of men and with the, stri the stripes of the children of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul when I put, a when I put him away before thee, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever, I'll say that again, forever before thee, thy throne shall be established forever, according to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak to David. Now that's the Davidic covenant. It basically said that David's offspring would never depart from the throne of Israel 
and of course during the uh during the time of the divided Israel, that kingship was over Judah. And of course, uh, if we go to Ezekiel, we can read about the two sticks being put together. And the two sticks are uh, the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, and they are gonna be brought back together. And so if you read about two sticks in Ezekiel, that's what it's about. Now, if you go to the book of Matthew, which is written to show us that Jesus Christ came and is presented in Matthew as the king of the nation of Israel. He came and he said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Um, and when you look at the genealogy that leads up to Christ in the book of Matthew, does anybody know where it starts? Well, the answer is it starts with King David. Whereas in the book of Luke, which is to show Christ as the son of man or the son of Adam, the genealogy starts with Adam. And so there are reasons for all these things. And it's, I think it's neat. And it's uh, a blessing to understand how specific and how uh, coordinated God made sure through his inspired writers of the scripture that everything would fit in place. Even as Christ said, not one little jot, not one little tittle, these were little marks in Hebrew, would ever pass away. And they all fit together. They are all true. And they make perfect sense for the one who wants to take the time to study and see how they all relate one to the other. And that the book that we have in front of us is, is like no other book mm -hmm. ever written. It's all one story of redemption by God through his son, Jesus Christ. And that I find the more I see that, the more I learn that, the more excitement I have mm -hmm. regarding uh, the veracity and the beauty and magnificence of this book we call the Bible. Now what comes next in Isaiah chapter 9 is called the visions of the outstretched hand. I started to say this a while ago and I think I got sidetracked. The primary enemy that is discussed in these portions of Isaiah that we are studying 
and this will go on for some time in Isaiah, the primary enemy that we are to understand was coming against the nation of Israel and Judah was the great kingdom of Assyria. The capital of Assyria was Nineveh. And that great empire of Assyria was one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen. It lasted for 700 years. And Assyria is not to be confused with Syria. Assyria, the Assyrian Empire was north of Lebanon, up into the plain of Shinar, uh, where also the city of Babylon was going to be located. And uh, was a very, uh, the Assyrian Empire uh, uh, included uh, Egypt and uh, eventually Samaria and many other great nations, uh, Ethiopia, many other great nations in the earth. And this was the burden that Isaiah carried in discussing the conquest of Assyria towards Israel. And so what happened is Assyria started picking away at the uh, nations north of Israel, uh, which would include the Philistines and uh, Lebanon, and then into Northern Syria and finally into northern uh, Israel. And never quite was able to defeat in, in, its, in its entirety the southern kingdom, that is Judah, which contained Jerusalem. However, what we are going to find is that when the Assyrian king got to Judah and Benjamin, he did not stop. And the fact is that when all was said and done, the last holdout against him was the city of Jerusalem. And the king, whose name was Shenanarib, did come to the gates of Jerusalem with more than a quarter of a million men, and he besieged the city. And we read about that in Second uh, Kings, and uh, that would be Second Kings, chapter twenty, along about verse thirty-five. 
Now we studied this not too long ago. Second Kings. What I say. All right. Now I'm just going to read a very small part of this. I'm in Second Kings, chapter, um, chapter nineteen. Um, I'll just start with uh, verse thirty, where God is speaking against this invasion and the taking of Jerusalem. And here's what happened. Uh, let's start verse 31. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, shall do this. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. Now, we need to remember this is the last thing the king of Assyria did as to uh, destroying God's people. Uh, this was the last straw. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there. Not one arrow was fired by Shinnerib, against Jerusalem, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. In other words, he's going to be turned away. He's going to run back to where he came from, and he shall not come into this city, saith the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my namesake and for my servant David's sake. Verse 35 is key. And it shall come to pass on that day when he was ready to take Israel. The next morning, he was going to take, pardon me, he was going to take Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord, which very well may have been the pre-incarnate uh, appearing of Christ. The angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000 men. The angel of the Lord did this. You think the Lord can't fight our battles? Yeah. <laughs> And when they arose early in the morning, they were all dead corpses. So Shinnerib, king of Assyria, departed, wouldn't you? <laughs> and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. That was capital of Syria. And it came to pass he was worshiping in the house of Nishrash, his God, that Adremelech 
and Shazar, his sons, smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia, and Esar Hadon, his son, reigned in his stead, and that was the end of the Assyrian invasion of the nation of Israel. So what you need to know is that Israel, the northern kingdom, Samaria, Ephraim, they were taken, they were killed, they were taken into captivity. And by the way, the heathen nations around them, when they saw what had happened, they flooded into the northern kingdom and took up root with even greater idolatry than already existed there. And God spared the southern kingdom from total annihilation. But every part of Judah, except for Jerusalem, had to taste the wrath and the, uh, the, the great hatred of the Assyrian ruler. But when he left, he left it all. And so Judah was saved. By that time, there was no northern kingdom left. They were gone. They were taken captivity. They were killed. They moved away. Uh, it, was a, it was a desolate land after he got done. Now that all occurred in about 722 thereabouts. It was a hundred and almost 120 years later that God did take Jerusalem and Judah and did bring captivity to those people. That's where Daniel and his three friends were taken captive and brought back to Babylon. And it was Babylon 120 years or so after the destruction of the northern tribes that Israel fell prey to the enemy under King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, there's a lot to say about that. Um, and one of the things we're going to see in the book of Isaiah is the judgment of God upon all the nations that hated Israel, Moab, Assyria, uh, Babylon, and a number of others. Uh, But one way or the other, idolatry began in the northern kingdom and worsened. I would tell you this, at the beginning, even during the time of Jeroboam, the first illegitimate ruler of the northern kingdom, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was the first king after Solomon's death of the southern kingdom, and there was civil war, uh, and immediately 
Jeroboam looked at his kingdom and said, there is no place for the people to worship because Jerusalem was the only place people could go to to worship. And so Jeroboam immediately put up heathen, heathen altars and he established in the city of Samaria a place of worship towards Baal, where the children of the Israelites were offered in the fire before that terrible God who was no God. And all of those in the northern kingdom that were that knew and could not stand what was going to happen and what did happen, they all moved to Judah. And so a number of people that would have been under the idolatrous rule of the kings of the northern kingdom, and there were a number of them, uh, many of the people escaped that. And the prophets that were uh, had aligned with Almighty God, they moved south and got out of that place. And my friends, when I think of that, I think of a New Testament scripture that says to Christians, come out from among them. Mm -hmm. Come out from among them. My friends, for those people that are in churches around the world that have apostatized against the truth of God, unless by special dispensation, God has kept some people there to maintain a testimony for some reason. The word of the Lord is for everybody in those churches to come out. But the sad truth is that most people in apostate churches do not know that that's where they are. They don't know the difference between sound doctrine and false doctrine. They do not know uh, the difference between truth and heresy. And they gradually become steeped in the government of the church, which is not by God, Jesus Christ is not the head of that local body, but pride and self-righteousness and uh, laxity in the minds of the people, uh, satisfaction with the status quo, the fact that they'd always been there, their grandmother had been there, 
their mom and dad had been there and they're going to be there. And Jesus said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. I think that's probably where I should stop today. Um, I'm looking forward, uh, and I hope you will too, some of the next chapters we will move through more quickly, I believe. But I'm really looking forward to chapter 11. And maybe we'll get to that next time. Uh, because it is of all the scriptures, the prophetic scriptures, you want to, you want to have a word picture of what the millennial reign of Christ is going to be in the earth. We're going to find it there. And so for that, uh, with that, I will close for today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I know the study of Isaiah is not an easy study, but as we study the scriptures, we pick up a piece here and a piece there. And it's important, particularly for this study, that you have some idea of the, of the, the flavor of the book and the, the uh, key elements and the most specific prophecies regarding the kingdom age are going to be found uh, in great abundance in the book of Isaiah. And so let's pray together. Father, thank you for these people that have come today willing to bend their minds and to attempt to understand not only the history, but the intervention and the government of God as he dealt with Israel and the surrounding nations, uh, which is part of his plan. But he never left us without the testimony that in the end, the Lord's plan which is perfect will come to pass and that he in the end will be lifted up as Lord of all. That we know and believe that we will reign with him as priests and kings in that government of God for a thousand years and then look forward to the eternal state of joy where no sin exists. Mm -hmm. We bless your name. Yes. Father, we say to you, we believe. Yes. We are not uh, 
we are not shrinking back from the enormity and the seemingly impossibility of such predictions. Bless these people with this truth as you have blessed us. Or we pray in Christ's name, amen. Just before I let you go, I want to I want to give you a teaser, and it is this. If you remember how we at length were able to decipher the prophecy of the period of time expressed absolutely perfectly to the day of the introduction of the person of Jesus Christ <laughs> on what we call Palm Sunday yes. from the specific point mentioned by Daniel. Uh, we worked that out and found that God had predicted in Daniel to the day from his time when Christ would enter into Jerusalem on that fateful day. Last night, in listening to Missler, and then because Alice uh, did some more research, we have become aware that according to a prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, that there is a timeline to the day from, from a certain, or actually from the first coming of Nebuchadnezzar to Jerusalem in 606, there is a timeline that can be calculated to May 14th, 1948. Mm -hmm. Th that blows my mind. Mm -hmm. Does everybody know what happened on May 14th, 1948? Yeah. That is when the, the nation of Israel, Israel became a nation. In a day. In a day. In a day. Which is what the scripture says. They will become a nation in a day. And it was in one day. The 13th of, of May, that year, 1948. No, on the 13th, they were not a nation. That's right. And on the 14th, they were a nation. Yes. Recognized immediately by Harry Truman, President of the United States, mm -hmm. and by a number of other countries. Mm -hmm. One, one uh, being not a country, but uh, I believe recognized even then by the UN. Mm -hmm. uh, since then, the UN has been nothing but their enemy. But isn't that exciting? Yes. That you can, if you work it out and 
and understand the scriptures. And there's things you have to understand about the scriptures uh, in regard to, and I hope to address this next week, in regard to the sevens in the scripture, the sevens are everywhere. Uh, and that also has to do with understanding that timeline. And so uh, I intend at some point in the future, not too distant, to prepare all that for you and get a copy of it to everyone. Because mm -hmm. uh, it is really neat. I thought it was neat that we could predict the day that Christ would show up in Jerusalem, but uh -huh. <laughs> to, to predict the date. You know, I have a book about all this by Sir Arthur Anderson. It is, it is excellent. However, Sir Arthur Anderson died in 1913. And so he could not work that out. I couldn't go to Sir Arthur Anderson, but it is found other places. And so I'm excited about it. Uh, I hope that you will be too. Uh, God bless, uh, all, God of bless you. all of you, and may, uh, may your weekend uh, be enjoyable.